0: Returning to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, and if this is, uh, if you're using one of those paperback Bibles, that's on page 690, and just, uh, you can just keep your finger there for a minute. Uh, This this past Friday was the last game of our family's first T-ball season. Um, and the, the kids all made huge improvements from the beginning of the year, but even in the last game, this is basically how T-ball goes, right? One kid hits the ball, and then every child on the field runs to where that ball is, and, and they fight over the ball, They, whoever gets the ball kind of comes out triumphant from the scrum and, and forgets that they're just supposed to throw that ball to first base to make the out. And that... All of that is, is adorable, understandable, because they're five-year-olds, right? You expect them to be sitting down when they should be standing. You expect them to be facing the back fence when they should be facing the batter. But if a player on a professional team was sitting down during play or uh, just ran across the field for someone else's ball or left the field right in the middle of an inning, uh, that you wouldn't tolerate that because there's a right and a wrong way to play baseball, Right? There's a right and a wrong way to play football. There's a right and a wrong way to play rugby. And if a player just decides to stop listening to his coach or stops, he decides he doesn't want to play this role, he wants to, like in baseball, I, just, I don't want to be shortstop anymore. I'm just going to go out to right field and see how that is right in the middle of the game. If they, if they stop acting for the good of the team, we wouldn't say, oh, he's such a free spirit. We would say, that is a selfish player. That is bad baseball. That's bad sport. We'd want them traded. But what's surprising is that what we we would say is a bad philosophy of sport, many people think is actually a great way to live, right? Make your own rules, follow your heart, be true to yourself. What we really prize in sport is people who know and do the role assigned to them, intended for them, but what we really prize in life is the freedom to follow our own desires. And anything that tells us to limit our freedom or resist our desires just feels like oppression. We're totally comfortable with the idea that there, there's a right and a wrong way to do sport, but we really resist the idea there's a right and wrong way to do life. And that's one of the reasons why our culture has a hard time making sense of Christianity. In our culture, the ultimate standard of good is, is inside of us, right? I just, I have to be true to myself. I have to, I have to be me. But in Christianity, the ultimate standard of good is outside of us. And we need, to, we, need to, we need to change a lot to conform to us. And that standard is called righteousness. It means living God's way in a way that pleases him, in a way that fits what we were made for. There are rules to this game. There's a way to live that's good and fulfilling and beautiful. And there's a way to live that's not. And this idea of righteousness is one of the themes of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which we're working our way through. And it's one of the key themes of the section we're beginning today. So please follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Jesus speaking, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire." Lord, we, we receive this this morning as you speaking to us. This book is your living word. In Lord Jesus, we just, we just reflect that sometimes you have to speak to us very strongly. And we want to receive that. We know that your words are for our good, that they come from a heart of love. We know that you intend this for our joy. And so we want to receive your word with humility. We want to receive it with gratitude. We want you to speak to us this morning. So we ask that you would, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to see in this passage the requirement of righteousness, the depth of righteousness, the urgency. Of righteousness and the source of righteousness. You have an outline in the back of your bulletin if you had one. So, first, the requirement of righteousness. Jesus says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, Jesus, from the beginning of his public ministry, bucked tradition. He healed people on the Sabbath, the Sabbath was the Jewish day of rest, and the religious leaders considered healing on the Sabbath to be a violation of the day of rest because it was a kind of work, but Jesus didn't care. He would touch people who had skin diseases and were considered ceremonial unclean. You weren't supposed to touch them, you could get unclean, but Jesus did it anyway. He would eat with people who were just notorious sinners, who had an awful reputation, so he seemed to the religious leaders to have no regard for God's law, to not care about righteousness at all. But Jesus said, no, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Now, just stop and think about that for a second. I want you to imagine that your firm has just uh, just received a new managing partner. A new managing partner has been set in place. And at the meeting where she's introduced, she says to you, to the, to the firm, I have come to fulfill the history of this firm, right? That would seem incredibly egotistical, right? If, if, a, if a candidate for president said, I am the fulfillment of the Constitution and all of our history, that is not a person you would probably vote for, right? Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the Bible, All its commands and promises and hopes of heroes of Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah. And that doesn't shock us maybe because we know Jesus is a big deal, but it would have stunned the people he was speaking to. Jesus is saying, what I'm doing isn't because I don't care about the law. I've come to fulfill the law, to see it through to completion, to take it where God always intended it to go. Now, what was the law for? Okay, God, God gave the law to his people after he brought them out of slavery, right? He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the wilderness. He brought them to Mount Sinai, and he gave them the law. And he said, I just got caught on this sign. That was amazing. I, you maybe didn't notice it, but I just I, all of a sudden I felt this pull. I'm getting in the... In the okay, back where, where it's Sinai. And, and God says to the people at Sinai, he doesn't say... Um, He says, I have rescued you. I love you. Now live according to my law. And if you do, you will be my treasured possession. Uh, A holy nation, a royal priesthood. He didn't say, um, he didn't say, obey my law. And then you'll earn my love and my salvation. He said, I already love you. I've already saved you. Now obey my law and become this people that I want you to be. I want you to become a community marked by love and justice and holiness. A community that shows the world what I'm like. That's what the law is for. It's, it's to, to show us what love and justice and holiness look like in daily life. In our relationships, in our work, in our worship. And Jesus is saying, I haven't come to do away with that. I've come to fulfill that. I've come to create a community that experiences God's salvation and then, and then lives a life that shows the world what he's like, to be a community that we, we talked about last week, right? A city on a hill, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the kingdom of heaven. So if Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets and the law was given to make us people of love and justice and holiness, then let me ask you, does Jesus care about righteousness? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Does Jesus care about righteousness? Oh, yes. He says not, he says not, not an iota. That's the smallest letter in Greek. Not a dot. Not the least part of the law will pass away until the universe passes away. He says that greatness in his kingdom is measured by obedience. If you relax the law, you're least. If you obey it and teach it, you're the greatest. He says in verse 20, there's a righteousness without which you can't even enter his kingdom. Jesus requires righteousness. And so can we just let that sit for a minute and try to feel the weight of it? Jesus requires righteousness. And we need to make sure that when we think of Jesus, we think of him as he really is. So did Jesus come to love the world? Yes, he did. Did did he come to seek sinners and the lost? Yes. Did he come to set us free from rules so we can follow our heart and live however we like? No. Jesus requires righteousness. And what kind of righteousness does he require? Secondly, the depth of righteousness. He says in verse 20, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And if Jesus, if you had been there, and Jesus had paused, as he may have after that statement, you could have heard a pin drop. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were like the gold standard of righteousness. They were notorious for it. They were the religious leaders. They had gone through the law. They had counted every single requirement. And then they created this whole tradition of laws around the law to make sure that they never broke a single one. And Jesus said, if you don't do better than that, you can't even enter my kingdom. So what righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? He alludes to it in verse 19, and then after this, in this section of the sermon, he gives a bunch of examples, okay? So we're going to look at the, the principle in verse 19, and one of the examples, but if you just look down in your Bible, you kind of see where we're going the next few weeks. He takes issue with the scribes and Pharisees What they've done and what actually the law was intended to teach. So you'll see down there in verse 21, anger. And then your Bible might have headings. Verse 27, lust. Verse 31, divorce. Verse 33, oaths. Jesus is going to go bit by bit and show how, show what the righteousness is that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So what's the principle? He says in verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least In the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus' critique of the scribes and Pharisees. They seem to be incredibly devoted to God's law. But what they actually do is they relax it. They make it easier. And so let's look at the first example of how they did this in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, what's going on here? Jesus is contrasting what the Pharisees teach about the sixth commandment. You guys know the Ten Commandments, right? The sixth one is, You shall not murder. And he's taking issue with how they interpret that versus what God intended. So what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching, basically, that all you need to do to fulfill that commandment is just don't kill anybody. They were saying, it says don't murder, it's only, only physically murdering someone is going to bring you into judgment. Anything short of that is fine. But Jesus says, no, 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 that commandment is aimed at something so much deeper. He says, if you get angry with your brother, if you insult him or call him a fool, you've broken the sixth commandment, you're guilty of murder. Why? Well, what's so wrong about murder, right? Lots of things, probably, that you can think of. But in essence, what murder is, why it's wrong, is because it treats someone made in the image of God as disposable. It says, uh, so God has made each person in his image with inherent value and dignity, and everyone has it, whether they're rich or poor, famous or obscure, good or bad. Everyone's made in his image. And murder says, you're not a person of equal value with me. You're an obstacle to what I want, and I'm going to get you out of the way. And the anger Jesus describes here has the exact same root. He has, look at verse 22. He says, um, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And your translation might say, whoever says raka to. Okay, there's an Aramaic word, raka, that's underneath this. That Whoever says raka to his brother will be liable to the council. And what raka means literally is empty, emptiness nothing it's it's saying to a person you're nothing to me you're dead to me you're like you have no you're empty you mean nothing to me at all and jesus says that that attitude of utter contempt towards another person is equivalent to murder now can you honestly say you never feel this way That you never feel about your supervisor at work or a rival in your department such contempt that they cease cease to be a person to you and they just become a frustration you wish you could dispose of. That you never get so consumed by bitterness towards a spouse or an ex-spouse that sometimes you just wish that you'd never have to see them again. That you never get so frustrated with your children that when they hurt themselves doing the exact thing you just told them to stop, That your initial impulse, instead of being compassion is, serves you right. Can you think of no one in your life who, if something bad happened to them, you would enjoy their pain more than you would sympathize? Maybe it's someone who's wronged you. And that's the key. Because we know Jesus isn't condemning all anger, right? In the Bible, God gets angry. And Moses gets angry. And Jesus gets angry, There's a kind of anger that's right. An anger that arises because injustice is being done to people who are vulnerable. Because God is not being honored as he should be. There's a holy anger that's unselfish. So just think about when did Jesus get angry? One of the times in the Bible when he got angry. There's a time when people brought to him um, someone who who needed to be healed. Someone came to him that was physically deformed. And the Pharisees and the scribes were all they could think about was, whether it was right or wrong to heal on the Sabbath. They were were just looking to cause a problem with Jesus, but he was so filled with compassion for this person who needed to be healed that he got angry with them at their hardness of heart. Or think of the time in the temple, right? When Jesus came into the temple, the place where sinners should be able to seek God, and it was so full of shops and money changers that people couldn't even get in, and he just, he flipped tables, didn't he? He got angry. So we know that not all anger is wrong, But when the wrong was being done to him, when he was the victim, did he get angry? When he was was falsely accused and beaten and crucified, was he angry? No. What did he do? He prayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Our anger isn't like that. It punishes people who are inconvenient to us, people who are obstacles to us, people who refuse to treat us like we're as important as we think we are. It's a kind of murder. And so this is the depth of righteousness that Jesus requires. It's so much deeper than the scribes and the Pharisees were willing to go. Remember, God gave the law to make a beautiful society, to make a community of love and justice and holiness. If all he required was that we just not kill each other, that would be a good start, but that wouldn't make us what we need to be. God wants us to love each other, which means not just letting each other live, but actually repenting of murder in our hearts, not even becoming angry with each other. So this, you guys see how the, how the Pharisees relaxed God's commandment. God is aimed at love, at love from the heart. And they, they wanted to make it easy, so they just relaxed it to just don't kill anybody. They, wanted, they weren't interested in being taught by the law how to love. They wanted to use the law as a way of making themselves seem extra holy. Right? To the Pharisees, the law was a way of scoring points. So they had to shrink it to make it easy. Most of us, I think, find it relatively easy not to kill people. But to not get angry, that's so much deeper. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was only skin deep. But Jesus says, if you want to enter my kingdom, your righteousness must go deeper. It must be righteousness of the heart. The Pharisees thought righteousness was all about looking good, but Jesus says you have to become good all the way through. And we let ourselves off the hook with anger, don't we? I can't be the only one. And I've tried to think about why that is. I think it's because other sins were more conscious of choosing. And so when we, when we want to improve, when we want to change, we just try to make better choices. But anger doesn't feel like a choice sometimes, does it? It just sort of rises up in you, and it overpowers you. And all of a sudden, you're saying and doing things that you, didn't, you weren't ever aware of choosing. So, we, because it f- doesn't feel like a choice, we tell ourselves, "Well, it's just—it's natural, right? It's—we it, couldn't help it. They—they they made us angry. We said it, don't you? You made me angry, as if anyone had that power." Jesus says, "No. There's no place for that kind of anger in my kingdom." So, how are you feeling? <laughs> this is serious, right? Now, I promise you that good news is coming, but Jesus wants us to see how much we need this righteousness. We have to see how sick we are before we'll take the cure. We've seen the requirement of righteousness, the depth of righteousness, and thirdly, the urgency of righteousness. So Jesus carries, with this, he carries on with this example of anger and, and says that we need to urgently address it. So look at verse 23. Jesus says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penalty. the penny. So, so Jesus uses two pictures here. Okay, a picture of someone offering a sacrifice at the temple and a picture of someone accused of wrongdoing and on their way to appear before a judge in court. And both press on the urgency of being reconciled. So let's look at this first picture. So remember, the point of the law wasn't just to get us to not kill each other, but to make us a community of love. And Jesus says that disharmony in the community, being estranged from one another, is so serious that if a man was making a sacrifice at the temple— realized he wasn't at peace with someone else, he should leave the sacrifice, reconcile, and then come back and finish. And remember that there's only one temple, right? This is in Jerusalem, in the center of the country. So he's saying, imagine that you've come days on foot to the temple, and you've waited in line to offer your sacrifice, and you're there doing the theme that you you think will atone for your sin and make peace between you and your creator, this is so important that you need to just stop right there, walk all the way home, make it right, and come back and finish. It's that important. Or to say it this way, you can't get right with God if you're not right with each other. So, God wants your obedience more than your worship. If you've wronged someone in anger, God wants your obedience more than he wants your worship. Go make it right. There may come a day where you realize in the middle of a church service that you're worshiping God, but you're not at peace with another Christian. And you may have to excuse yourself quietly and go get in your car and drive to where they are, ask forgiveness, make peace, drive back, and come back. Or get on the phone, or go tap someone on the shoulder, pull them to the side, and make peace. Jesus says it's that urgent. And the second picture reinforces the urgency. It's this picture of being on your way to court, right? You've been accused of something, you're going with your accuser, and and Jesus says, get it done before you get there. He's saying you should think of yourself, if you've wronged someone in anger, you need to think of yourself as someone on the way to appear before the judge, Reconcile now before you come into, into judgment. Make it right now while there's time. Because Jesus believed in divine judgment. Look at verse 22 again. He says, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to what? The hell of fire. Jesus believed in a day when all unforgiven sin would come into judgment. He believed in a holy God, a just God, who would not let wrongs go unaddressed. A God of love could never be indifferent to the way we wrong each other in anger, to the contempt we have for people that he made, to the ways we're pleased when others suffer instead of coming to their aid. Jesus believed in judgment. He believed in a righteousness without which we can't enter the kingdom. And so he says, this is urgent. Repent of your anger. Ask forgiveness. Make it right. Now, I told you there would be good news, and there is. So the last thing we need to see is the source of righteousness. Now, there's been a tension in this sermon that I wonder if you felt. Because we talked about God at Sinai, right? And he, he didn't say, obey the law, and then I'll love and save you. He said, I've already loved and saved you. Now, obey the law because you love me. And that's, that's what we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, that obedience is a response, right? We've seen that the kingdom comes to the poor in spirit, to those who know they don't deserve it and fall on the mercy of God. So on the one hand, we know that those who enter the kingdom enter it by grace as a gift. On the other hand, Jesus says, we can't enter it without righteousness. So entering the kingdom is a matter of receiving God's grace, and it's a matter of being truly righteous. And the only way those can both be true is if the righteousness we need is a righteousness God supplies by his grace. And that's why this passage is good news and not bad news. We haven't plumbed the depths of verse 17. Look back to verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we said that Jesus came to bring the law to its completion, to create a community of love and justice and holiness, a people for God's own possession. So how did he do that? Did he do it just through coming and teaching and telling them the depth of what's required, by by coming and telling them even more so what they need to do that they can't do? No, that is not the only way Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it through what he did. Okay, so we're going to look back for a minute at chapter 3, You want to turn back a page to chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 15. So John the Baptist had been calling people to repent, to turn back to God, to prepare the way for the Lord. And, And part of that, part of that repentance was he was baptizing them in the Jordan River. And Jesus came to him to be baptized, and John tried to prevent him. He said, you don't need to be baptized, Jesus. This is for repentance, and you've never sinned. I need to be baptized by you. But what did Jesus say in chapter 3, verse 15? He said, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So, what's he saying? He's saying, I have come to do what no human has ever done, to live a completely righteous life, not for myself, but in the place of you, in the place of sinners. What, what people can never do, what sinners can never do, I'll do for them. So while they're the ones who need to repent and be baptized, I'll be baptized for them. While they're the ones who ought to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, they can't. So I'll do it for them. You've told them, God's told them to love their neighbor as themselves, but they can't. So I will for them. Jesus alone fulfilled the righteousness the law demands, but on the cross... He took the judgment the law prescribes for those who break it. When we fall short of righteousness, we're what Jesus described in verse 22 as liable to judgment, liable to the hell of fire. We deserve death. But instead of handing us over to judgment, Jesus handed himself over in our place. He fulfilled all righteousness. He earned a perfect record, and then he took our judgment and offers us his record of righteousness. When we trust in Jesus, we're counted righteous in God's sight, and he does even more than that. So when we trust in him, he sends his Holy Spirit to change our hearts and make us truly righteous from the inside out. So not only does he give us his record of never being selfishly angry, of never murdering in our heart, but then he sends his Spirit to change our hearts so we become the kind of people who don't even do that. The people who don't hate, the people who don't have contempt for other people, the people who love one another sincerely from our hearts. So do you see, it's, it's all grace because Jesus paid it all. He gives it all, and yet we still enter the kingdom with righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees because Jesus gives us new hearts that love deeper. That We become deeply righteous from the heart. So when Jesus calls you to righteousness, he's not calling you to lose your identity. He's offering to make you what you were made to be, a person of love and patience, a person who can be done with selfish anger and can live at peace. Righteousness is what you were made for. Isn't this the community you want? Not a place where we just, we look good on the outside, but we, con- we conceal bitterness and contempt, where where we're all hypocrites and our true colors come out privately, but a community where we love one another sincerely. Isn't that what you want to become? Wouldn't that be a city on a hill? There is hope for angry people, but only through seeing and experiencing what Jesus has done. In one of his hymns, William Cooper wrote, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. When we see that he has fulfilled all righteousness for us, we'll gladly obey him from the heart. We'll become what we were made to be, a community of love and justice and holiness, a city on a hill. How we'll shine. Let's pray. Lord, what you offer is what we need because we are angry people. We are selfish. And we get enraged when people don't make things easy for us, when they wrong us, when they refuse to serve our idols. Lord, we get angry with people that we love. We get angry with our family. We get angry with our parents. We get angry with our coworkers. We get angry with our friends. And we feel like we can't stop getting angry. And so what you offer, we need. We need your righteousness. We need to be forgiven for our unrighteous anger, forgiven for the murder of our hearts. And we need to be changed. We need the work of your spirit in our hearts, to make us people who love from deep within, not as a show, not to pretend, not to look better in people's eyes, but who love as an instinct because you're making us like you. And so we ask that you would do that, that this morning, that you would call us righteous and that you would make us righteous and that we would shine with your light in this world. I pray that that if there's, a, if there's a place we need to be reconciled, that you would show us this morning, that even as we sing, that you would bring to mind a relationship where we're not speaking anymore, where we're bitter and nursing a hurt, where we're waiting for them to take the first step because they were the one who was wrong. I pray that you would help us to, to see the face of that person and help us to pursue them in love. Help us to ask forgiveness where we need it. Help us to extend it where it's needed. And I pray that you would make us a people of peace. Please do it for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.